0: I met Michael DiTullo a few years ago when we were neighbors in Encinitas. He'd commented on the standard H sticker on my car, and we've been friends ever since. I had the pleasure of talking all things creative with Michael several weeks ago in his home where it was only confirmed he's more than just your typical designer. We talk about what it was like growing up on the East Coast, and when asked what he wanted to do as a child, his response? I want to design stuff for the future. Well, That he did as he went on to work for some of the most respected design agencies in the world, as well as other heavy hitters in companies such as Nike. He's designed watches, headphones, cars, and even shoes for Michael Jordan himself. You know those running shoes known as Nike Free? He had his hand in those too. We talked design inspiration, what makes for good design, why he turned down a job from Nike right out of college only to accept one years later. This conversation is a great example of why having a dream mixed with passion and a healthy work ethic may just be the perfect recipe for success. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to The Standard Age Podcast. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome to be here. Absolutely, man. Um, Thank you for having me in your home of all places. Very, very hospitable of you. Um, just jumping right into it. Where did you grow up? What was childhood like? That kind of thing.
1: Yeah. So I grew up
0: outside of New York City,
1: um, about an hour and a half train ride up, straight up the Hudson, and uh, it was an interesting place to grow up because you knew there was something really big, really close by, but you also knew you were not in it. <laughs> um, so it's a lot of like post-industrial towns. I, I was born in a town called Poughkeepsie. Um, and grew up outside of, um, right outside of Newburgh, which is kind of like a post-industrial city, but where we lived, it was like a lot of apple orchards and very r- rural. Um, but, you know, a train ride to New York City. So grew up kind of going down there. My mom would take us to Broadway shows and shop around. Um, and so it was an interesting time, especially kind of growing up at that time, getting into Grand Central, you know, in the 1980s, you know, it's very different. It was a different place.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And then being kind of remote like that, I guess that would sort of force creativity upon you. I mean, I guess we'll get more into that, but.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I was always kind of inventing my own ways to keep myself entertained. Um, where, Where I grew up from when I was born, basically until I was about 12, there was like 10 other kids on, on our street, all about the same age. And so we were always just like making up games and you know, like putting all the toys in a pile and picking each other's toys. And that was, that was really kind of amazing. You just go outside and you know, mom would be like, come back at lunch.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Back when kids went outside to play.
1: Yeah. And just like roving around like a whole block. Right. And, um, you know, to like ride my bike a few blocks to the corner store and, play Galaga and get some noun later and like a very, very like pleasant um and then and then when I was like twelve we we moved way out to the country in the in the middle of the apple orchards and that was a real culture shock because the closest kid was like a mile and a half away and I didn't like, didn't like him that much. <laughs> but he was like, that's who I got. So <laughs> Yeah.
0: It's hilarious. Yeah. Well you mentioned your mom. What uh what did your parents do?
1: They my parents were um my mom just kind of did a bunch of different jobs growing up she worked retail um a lot she you know worked in a jewelry store uh, and she always loved kids so she would babysit a lot um and growing up my dad was a uh, an entrepreneur he he owned a small chain of kind of gourmet gr- uh grocery stores um that that ended up going bankrupt when i was little i, I mean i remember it um so oh, wow. so you have this like you know, this kind of lean Christmases. Um, and then he was just like a stock boy at a grocery store. Uh, and my mom basically put him through college. Um, and so he got a degree in economics and then ended up working in economic development. So, um, and on the creative side, there's always a lot of creative people in my family. Um, my, my, dad is the drummer my uncle's the drummer my grandpa played the saxophone in fact my my grandpa LaFalse, my, my mom's father they had a it was a huge family like a huge italian-american family 11 kids nine boys and each of the nine boys played a different instrument and sang so they had a jazz band yeah full band yeah yeah it's yeah, like a big band <laughs> yeah um and they would like play around the cat skills. Uh, so we always had a lot of music like gigs. Yeah. They yeah. would play. Oh wow. Yeah, so I mean, not, not like when a, I was born, but right. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah.
0: But like proper big band. Yeah. Yeah. As like all brothers and sisters or mm-hmm. all brothers, I guess. Yeah. And and like
1: grew up in like a two bedroom apartment, you know, like there's pictures amazing. of them all practicing in the kitchen of this tiny apartment. And I think they even had a couple of TV appearances.
0: Um, well, their neighbors must've loved. Them. Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As long as they like jazz. Uh, and then they, uh, you know, they kind of like went to the war and then all had got married, had kids, all ended up doing their, their different things, but just kind of grew up with a lot of music. And, um, when I was, when, when, after my dad lost the business, we moved in with my grandfather. And so it was kind of a multiple generations. You had my grandfather who was a musician, my mom's brother, my, my uncle, my uncle Mark was living with us, who was also a drummer. Um, he was in a band called agit popped and then he played with the toured with the macons and kind of a lot of, a lot of post-punk kind of a stuff. And then he was going to art school at that time. So, you know, here I am in like third grade learning how to draw in perspective. And, um, Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that was a, that so was a
0: huge influence. That was the door opening.
1: Yeah. And I just, I just was always drawing and, that was a way to kind of entertain myself um, once we did move out to the country and I'd you know come home from school and I would open up the Sears catalog if you remember what that is yeah and, <laughs> and Amazon as a book for those of you that are too young uh, and I'd open it up to a random page and be like oh there's you know whatever power drills I wonder what the future of power drills will look like and I would draw it and I was doing that at age 13. Which is basically you know, what I do now at age forty three as a job, right? So.
0: so, as a thirteen year old, you were you were already thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Um, I mean, as great, opposed yeah. to just making it better yeah. in current
1: day. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think I was, you know, an eighties kid completely infatuated with Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica and. Aliens and Predator and like every, you know, sci-fi thing. Like, I think I was like, after begging my parents, I think it was probably like 10 years old when I watched Blade Runner. <laughs> just You should not watch that movie when you're 10 years old. But <laughs> not when you're 10. <laughs> no. Um, and watching like 2001, A Space Odyssey. And like, and I just thought, I don't know. I just thought there had to be a job where somebody was imagining what the future would be like.
0: That's really interesting because you're basically not just thinking about the future and you're obviously engulfed in this like Mm -hmm. sci-fi type of fantasy world, but it's everything, but what you're living, right? It's, (laughs) it's everything except an apple orchard, (laughs) right? Yeah, basically. So obviously there's that level of escapism, I guess.
1: Yeah. And I, I was not an outdoorsy kid, like by any means I was not like into sports. I was not good at sports. Um, I wasn't into, like, nature, I was just happy to, like, be in my room, like, building things out of Legos, taking stuff apart, and and drawing, and um, it was, it definitely was, like, a way to escape and, and go to another place, and um, I, re- I remember having to, you know, when you're a kid, and you're, like, in English class, and you have to pick a book to read, and, and um, just, Wandering through the bookstore trying to find something and um, I, I stumbled apart, across the like science fiction section right uh, and Ended up in middle school reading like all this classic science fiction by Isaac Asimov and like Ender's Game and um, Even getting into some like Philip K. Dick stuff who, who wrote um, The original short story that Blade Runner is based on and so I was always really in my head and, and trying to kind of imagine these worlds that these authors were writing about. And, um, I think it really just inspired
0: me. You have a brother, right? What, mm-hmm. how many siblings? Just one just, brother. Just the yeah. one brother. Now was he into this stuff too, or? We,
1: we have a lot of really similar tastes. Ironically, we're, we're eight years apart. So I'm in, in a way, almost more like an uncle than a brother. Um, we never really fought over anything, which was great. And yeah. I, I think, as a teenager, it can be challenging because you're like 18 and you're kind of like the caretaker of this 10 year old while your parents are working. Right. Uh, but as adults, we're super close and we really have a lot of the same tastes in science fiction and mid century modern design and uh, music and and uh, I think I think we get each other excited about things. He he ended up going to school for uh, photography and film video, so uh, also a very creative guy.
0: That's cool. So you were obviously introduced by way of your uncle, right? Mm -hmm. Like, uh, showing you how to draw in perspective and stuff. So then did that translate into classes that you would then take early on? Like say, I mean, did you have mandatory art classes in elementary school or is that something you could, like, I went to a school where we had electives actually, so Mm -hmm. I could choose art back then. Yeah, did you do that kind of thing? Like what was the setup there like early on when you were nine? For example, we
1: had we had mandatory art classes in elementary and middle school and that was was pretty basic but I had some really good art teachers and They were pretty cool about just you know, being like, okay, you're <laughs> Why don't you just go over there and do what you want to do? You don't have to do what the class does and that was I remember this mr Kelso was my middle school art teacher and he was just awesome and he had, we had a he had an art club and so like i think it was once or twice a year he would get a bus to take all of us down to new york city and we'd go to the met we'd go to the guggenheim um as middle schoolers you know it was pretty amazing yeah it was really cool yeah and then we had electives um in high school and i i don't know why we really lucked out to have this awesome high school in that we had all of this this huge uh, tech department so we had uh like architectural drafting and design drawing, in design drawing, I remember one of the projects was you had to like design three concepts for a phone and then do a survey with all the students uh, to be like, which phone would they like and why? And I'm like, man, it's kind of my job Wow! <laughs> so that was an elective. Um, and, and then just getting into some more advanced art classes. We had, a, um, I remember the, the design drawing teacher was mr wagner got so crazy to remember these people right because i shaped your life at the time and then in the fine arts teacher who I took painting from um was mr becker or belker and he was from he was scandinavian he was from europe i always remember he had this like pretty pimped out Volvo wagon like you know the high spec version (laughs) uh and um mr beekman that Shout and, out to Sweden. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> and and he was just awesome. I, I remember you know, I got in trouble once and, and had got detention, and uh, he swung by the detention room and he's like, "Hey, I, I got this kid. I'm going to make him clean up the art room." And he'd like boom, go to the art room and he'd be like, All right, "Just sit down there and draw. Don't get in trouble again." <laughs> you know, like wow, yeah, just like really. I had some really great teachers, and so I even remember I took like an independent study. In high school, just to like make my portfolio for to apply to art school, and he was super helpful.
0: That's uh, that's yeah, really smart. What'd you get detention for?
1: I was probably if I got bored in a class, I just
0: just space out. Yeah,
1: or just, or just act out talking like I like get in trouble for talking to girls or whatever. <laughs>
0: so. That sort of brings us to kind of like when you started to think about doing it for a living, I guess you know obviously you had sites on design school for college obviously yeah um was it that early on that you wanted to do that for a living I mean obviously you mentioned earlier that somebody has to do this right Right. so why not me that was the mentality I guess Mm -hmm. that's like I don't know like foreshadowing being the right word but like that's very um self-aware I guess I don't know where I got the insight from, to
1: be honest. It's like not many kids insightful. Yeah, I have that. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I remember kind of two key stories. When I was 13, my parents asked me what I wanted to do when I grow up. And I said, I, I want to draw stuff from the future. And I could tell they were just like, that's, you know, totally baffled. Um, but a few weeks later, my father found on the front page of the Wall Street Journal which my father read every day, there was an article about um, Giorgio Giugiaro, who, you know, designed the original the DeLorean, the original Volkswagen Golf. And there was like a you know, that Wall Street Journal style of illustration. There was an illustration of um Giugiaro, and then there was a drawing of a car he had done, a tennis racket, and a cruise ship, and a piece of pasta that he had designed to hold sauce better. And my dad was like is this is this what you want to do and you know he said he was an industrial designer and I was like oh my god that's it right and so so you finally had a label I had a name right and and had I had not made that prior statement a few weeks before that article might have passed me by and I might never I mean, it might have been years and, and, and a lot of my colleagues don't find out about industrial design until they're into their their bachelor's degree because it's just not a lot of awareness and that's always frustrated me. How many great designers are we missing out on in the field because they just don't know about it until it's, you know, quote unquote, too late. And they're already down a career path and it's hard to switch. Um, and then I, I went to the, I ended up going to the Rhode Island school of design. Um, and so I knew, I knew what it is I wanted to do. I didn't really know where to go. Uh, my guidance counselor was, I'll I'll never forget, was like, yeah, you want to be a mechanical engineer. I'm like, no, it's an, called this other thing industrial design (laughs) not mechanical engineering it's you know that's not what it is um and freshman year of high school I was if I I was in algebra class and I was bored out of my mind I think it just you know it's like if you already understand the concept but somebody else doesn't and the teacher's got to repeat it and so I was kind of in the back of the class just drawing furiously in my notebook and my teacher Mrs. Jacobus kind of he's lecturing and kind of comes up behind and I'm just in my own world back there. And she slams down her hand on my notebook and rips the page out, crumples it up and says, come see me after class. And I was terrified I was like, oh, I'm in trouble again. You know? <laughs> and I come to see her after class and she takes the, the crumpled up paper out of the trash and she smooths it all out. And she writes on the top Rhode Island school of design. And she said, you know, my brother went here for architecture write this pre you know pre-internet so she's like write them a note so you can get their catalog and you should probably go there for school and That's i ended up, cool. ended up going there so so she was your direction yeah like yeah uh,
0: Mrs. did you even consider going anywhere else or were you just like wow this must be the great place
1: i did i i um once i kind of understood what types of schools had industrial design um They have these portfolio review days, so I think I went to one down at Pratt in Brooklyn and did a tour of Pratt, and I interviewed with Pratt, RISD, um, uh, which is Rhode Island School of Design, uh, Syracuse University, College of Creative Studies in Detroit and Art Center in Pasadena, and RIT, Uh, and I never... I'll never forget when I interviewed with the guy from RISD and I pulled up, I poured out my portfolio. He said, Oh, we got a young Jujaro here. And I was like, what? And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. So that was amazing. That's um, awesome. and, um, quite the compliment. Yeah, totally. I mean, maybe it was being sarcastic, but in my mind it was amazing. <laughs> um, and then I toured Pratt and at the time, you know, bed it was not as nice as it is now. And I, I remember, because Pratt gave me an, an acceptance and a scholarship. And I asked one of the students, I'm like, hey, like, is it pretty safe to go out like around school? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's totally fine. Just don't go out in groups less than three and don't go out after dark. And I was like, you know, I just don't know. <laughs> and he might have been messing with me.
0: Maybe you misunderstood the question. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> oh.
1: I was like, I don't know if I want that to be my experience. Um, I went and checked out. Syracuse, but it's just like a giant university and that didn't feel right. right. Um, I went up to RIT and it was just like super cold. <laughs>
0: Sorry. What is RIT? Uh, R-
1: Rochester Institute of Technology. Rochester. Yeah. Upstate. Which New York. has a really good ID program. Uh, and then I went to RISD and it just kind of felt right. It's kind of co The campus is commingled with Brown and it's an, an urban campus. So it, it's kind of like, you know, a few regular buildings and then a RISD building. And it's not really like a closed campus. Um, so you're really kind of part of the city and it's just, kind of, Providence is like a beautiful small city where you can have fun and can't really get into too much trouble, right. but you can take a train to Boston or New York pretty quick. So, and it, it felt good cause it's like, you know, four hours away from home. So you're like away from home, but not, I, I flew out to art center and I was like, man, this is for, you know, far. Yeah. In pre email days, this is really feels really far. Yeah.
0: Pay phones. Yeah, totally. As a, when I was at boarding school, that's how I communicated with my parents oh. is through pay phone. Oh my God, that's wild. Now we're going way back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, But yeah, it's kind of a trip to be that far away from home. But um, do you remember what you drew in that class that she crumpled up? Oh man, I have no idea.
1: That's a good question. I wish I had that. What? I do have some drawings from that time period though. I have okay. like some old like Nike drawings and car drawings.
0: Okay, um, so you were into shoes and cars early. Yeah, yeah. And I think for me,
1: I think when you're a kid, before you can drive, like, shoes are your car, right? That's kind of like your transportation. Um, and I had an interesting experience, I, I think. I, I, my elementary school, I went to Catholic school. So, you know, we're all uniformed out, couldn't wear sneakers. And so you don't really have a sense of style because it's just what you have to wear.
0: Cookie cutter. Right.
1: And then when I went to middle school, my parents asked me, like, hey, do you want to go to public school? I was like, yeah, I want to go. That'd be great.
0: (laughs) I just want to wear my own shoes. Yeah,
1: I don't have to walk in, like, a straight line, you know, down the hallway, military style. That'd be great. Um, So, you know, I show up to school and, like, I'm like, man, all these kids are wearing these red, white, and black sneakers with a check on the side and some wings, and I come home, I'm like, Mom, I got to get those shoes. Like, the, all the cool guys have that sh- those shoes. And she gets me, you know, we go to the store. And I'm, like, she, I'm like, yeah, I think those are them. I get them. And everybody's making fun of me the next day. And I'm like, why are everybody making fun of me? They're like, dude, you got Pony City Wings. <laughs> they get the knockoff Jordan ones. Like, I come home, I'm like, Mom, I can't wear these shoes. She's like, well, you got you to wear them now. You know, like, and, and uh, you know, we just didn't have money to, afford those shoes so i think it was like a a, my way of um attaining them was to draw the what i thought the next ones i wonder what the jordan sixes will look like right
0: right um, back when they were just called the new jordans right as opposed to the numbers right yeah totally
1: so i i was really into shoes and cars and um, electronics i have like all these drawings of like mini disc players and just all kinds of, you know, funny things like that from high school. And then, um, I totally forgot about mini disc
0: <laughs> players for a minute. Wow. Blast from the past as well.
1: Yeah. This is another shout out to my brother. He he got deep into the mini disc. Oh really? He had like a, he had like a component mini disc system at home and an in dash mini disc for his car and a portable mini disc. And I'm like, he was, this is the future. I don't <laughs> I love that's you, brother, sick. but I don't think so. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and so when I went to college, I mean, I was, that's what I was trying to focus on. And I did a, I like I did a sponsored project for Nissan, for, for Chrysler, um, and then for Nike. So,
0: yeah. yeah. So what were some of the early influences on you back then? Um,
1: In terms of other designers, you know, it always was, Shijaro and um, Raymond Lowy, who was really one of the first industrial designers, one of the first to kind of call himself by that term. And I look at those guys from the early era, you know, you got Raymond Lowy, who had a really successful consulting practice, and Elliot Noyes, who was head of design at IBM, who would, you know, like hire Noguchi to design their gardens, or the Eames to design an office building. Right. And so, and he was you know, really like the first VP of design. And so, I think you had this really interesting moment post World War II where design was really respected. You know, Raymond Lowy, was—he he designed Air Force One. He designed NASA's Skylab, the first space station. He designed the Shell logo. He, you know, designed a bunch of Studebakers. So, and architecture and furniture. He was really working across all these categories and it's like, you never saw him not in a double breasted suit. And of course he was this very like debonair French guy living in Palm Springs and, um, in the fifties and sixties, but it was really like s- taken very seriously. Um, and I don't, I mean, there's kind of like a really fascinating minor shout out to him in the movie, the aviator, you know, okay. where DiCaprio is playing, uh, Howard Hughes. And there's a moment where they're looking at some parts for a plane for TWA and, and the the line is get Ray Lowy on the phone. (laughs) I mean, this is the guy who was on the cover of time magazine. And so to me, I always wanted, I wanted that level of, um, respect and, um, I guess notoriety sounds like a, a dirty word, but the, the reason for it is so that you can do the kind of work you want to do for the kind of clients you want to work with. Sure. And, and to me, that's what it's always been about, like about it, building my portfolio, building my personal brand, building my studio and my name. It's all about can I get the freedom to do the kind of work where I could feel like that 13 year old where I'm drawing stuff from the future,
0: not being told what to draw necessarily. Yeah, and
1: and not being maybe not being so iterative, and so, um, and and I, I think where I've really shined is when I've had the room to develop something that was a little bit different, um, and helping companies to take risks, basically to get out from under the like, well, this is what our competition is doing, so let's chase it. And by the time you chase it, it comes out twelve months later. Well, your competition's moved on. So the only way to lead is is to. To try to leapfrog and get out ahead, and that is inherently scary, um, and that's okay. And I, I talk a lot. A lot of what I do with clients is is helping them through that. And you know, uh, multiple times when I've pitched concepts and I'll have a client and they'll be like, "This, this really scares us." And i will be like, "That's great." I'm like, what do you mean it's great? We're scared. I'm like, because if I didn't show you something that scared me, scared you, why would you pay me all this money? <laughs> You know, that's literally my job is to bring you the thing that you haven't seen before. So the fact that you are right now saying we haven't seen that before is a sign that I'm providing value to you. Um, and now let's talk about what are, you know, the strengths and opportunities around this concepts you know what, what, are, what are the potential pitfalls and, and let's work backwards from it uh, versus you know, retreating back into something that's iterative
0: we'll jump around here for a second. So you, you're kind of touching on like your current philosophies with your own design mm-hmm. firm. Um, going back, leaving RISD, mm-hmm. what were some of your first jobs? Like what, what was that? The resume, right? If we yeah. could like jump through the resume real quick, sure. like where'd you, what are some of the early gigs you had?
1: So I was you know doing these sponsored projects, uh, for, for pretty big companies and I graduated in 98, um, Nike had, had kind of softballed me a little bit of an offer, but I was, wasn't graduating for a couple months, and I, I unwisely didn't, like, accept it and get it in writing. I was kind of like, well, let's see what else happens, right? <laughs> Just like an idiot, um, and then I graduate, and I was like, well, how do I get a job now? Like, I don't, I don't even, how does this work? Um, and, I called back, I called Nike, the head of design at the time, Dave Scannoni. He's like, yeah, we just had like our worst quarter ever and we have a hiring freeze. So I'm like, what's a hiring freeze mean? He said, we can't hire anybody. I'm like, well, like for how long? He's like, I don't know, maybe six to eight months. I'm like, oh my God, like I need a job now though. And so I moved back home. I, I applied for some jobs um, at like Smart Design, at Frog, at Continuum And i got rejected from all of them and so i was like man what am i gonna do and um i interviewed out at adidas i interviewed at uh do you know um the jet skis yeah okay and just like nothing was working out and i was like well you know i could sit on the couch and at my parents house and watch cartoons all day or i can just go you know they had like a big basement there's a ping pong table down there i was like i could just set that up as my studio And basically pretend like I have a job. (laughs) And so I got a couple of freelance gigs and every week I would work on my portfolio. And then on Fridays, I'd mail out these books of my portfolio. And after about six months of doing that, which was, it was getting pretty disheartening. um, But after about six months of doing that, I started getting some callbacks and I got a callback from Continuum in Boston, um, which is a pretty big firm and i got a call back from um, this small firm at the time in connecticut called evo evo and uh, at the time there was just four people there two two partners um a junior designer and a biz dev person and a receptionist so maybe five and i just really connected with the junior partner this guy aaron samansky who is only eight years older than me and and you know i i he says he doesn't remember it happening this way but I remember coming in and him being like I only got 30 minutes so let's be quick about this and I was just like oh man I'm gonna lose another one and two hours go by and he's like why don't you just hang out here I gotta go talk to the senior partner real quick so you know he he's talking to the senior partner for like 30 minutes and then he's like all right let's go outside and he gives me an offer on the spot and um Amazing. you know I was just like He's like, so, you know, think about it if you want to think about it. I'm like, no, nope, I'm going to, I don't need to think about it. Like, I feel good about this. Like, there's a connection here. This is a person I can learn from. It was a small firm, but they were doing pretty big work uh, for big clients. Um, And so I, I ended up working there for about four and a half years and about a year or two into it. and And the cool thing was, is like, yeah, you think like you're hot shit when you're out of school and you go somewhere and you're like, I'm the worst guy here.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. 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 Well, like, is, what were some of the things you said in the interview? Because like, I've been in interviews in the past where like you know you knock it out of the park kind yeah. of thing, and then there's other interviews where you're like nervous the entire time because you're like, oh my god, I don't think they like anything that I'm saying. Yeah. Like what what were you guys talking about? Um, you, I, I mean, anything yeah, of note? I mean,
1: we're going back to 1998 now, but sure, but I think, sure. But I think what I remember is. I had just brought so much work and I built all these books of like, Oh, here's a book of architecture. Here's a book of housewares. Here's a book of
0: consumer electronics. And so you were literally illustrating that you were like a multi disciplinarian right. as far yeah. as like the different.
1: And I built it, I built it in different books so that I could, um, you one easily kind of edit. And two, if the interview was going poorly, I could be like, well, that's all I have. <laughs> And if the interview was going well, I could just pull another book out and keep it going.
0: Oh, they were categorized.
1: Yes. I see. Yeah. So like they were like, you know, bound, like Kinko's bound books. Yeah. um, Of sketches and and models and photographs of models and things. And so, you know, it was going well and I just kept pulling out another book. And he's like, oh man, you got architecture too. And, And Aaron had an ID degree, but he worked for... Um, an interior, a commercial interior design firm for years. And he also was very kind of multifaceted. Um, so I, I think we just kind of like, were very like-minded and he, right. he saw that. So you
0: were just two peas in a pod yeah. at that point. Yeah.
1: And I think he was like, here's a, a guy who's hungry and I could take under my wing. And I was like, here's a guy I can learn from who's going to push me because he's better than me. Sure. And you know, I would be, at the time we had like two desks like a computer you had a computer desk and a drawing table and i'd be pretty much i was drawing for eight to ten hours a day for years um and i remember early on you know he'd come over we were working on a project for fisher price or like libby glassware and i'd be sketching on it all day and he'd come over and he'd be like, all right michael show me what you got and so i'd pitch him all my ideas i would usually have like eight to ten concepts after the day and he'd be like all right give me that one that one that one he'd go back to his desk and in 10 minutes he'd be like okay here's what you should have done and uh i be like wow like this dude can just in 10 minutes take my whole 10 hours of work and like put together the the idea, but that's really great yeah. that
0: you got that kind of immediacy, right, totally. and that constructive criticism, yeah. so quickly, yeah, and I re- so you learn so much faster. What what took you ten hours might seem like forever, but right. in it's a day, yeah, and you probably had all these lessons. That's yeah, that's amazing.
1: And and like he was using me to like generate raw ideas, and then he was coming in as the director and like curating them, and right. then just drawing it out into one. And I'll I'll never forget the day he came over and just looked at what I had done for the day. I was like, looks great. Send it to the client. And you're like, no changes? He's like, nope, just send it right. Send it over. And so it really, you know, it really means something. Um, And i mean, in between there. I remember we were doing, the firm was growing. I think we probably grown to about 10 people was doing really well. And we were doing a project for Timex. Um, And so, you know, all the designers who were a little older than me were really like, that's a pretty cool project to do a watch and I I was doing some concepts and the vice president of design from Timex was coming in to review concepts um and I didn't have many that made it to the board uh the big presentation board but my boss um Aaron came over and I had this little thumbnail I mean literally like a two inch sketch and he was like what's that and I was like well you know they're saying it had this innovative movement inside of the way he set the alarm and stuff was really interesting it's like they want to show that this is a different kind of a watch and i just thought like well all watches are symmetrical so maybe it should be asymmetrical <laughs> it was just like kind of a and he's like yeah okay give me that and he goes to the photocopier and he blew up the little one and a half two inch sketch to 11 by 17 like huge and then just like pinned it up on the in the center of the, the board and the VP from of design came over from Timex because they were not far away. His name was John Houlihan. And uh, I remember John came right in. He was like, what's that one? Pointing at my thumbnail. And my boss Aaron was like, that's the one that we're going to make. And he's like, yep, let's do it. And that went to production. <laughs> so it was a really cool place to work because you really saw everything. Uh, as a you know, as a 22, 23-year-old, I was presenting to these veterans and, and learning so much. Um, and for me, I felt like, well, I'm not the best here, but I have a lot I can learn and I definitely could come in earlier than anyone and I can leave later than anyone. Yeah. So I would, you know, at the end of the day, photocopy all of the designer sketches who I thought were better than mine and I would take them home and I just like study them. And one day I was, I was working late. It was probably like, you know, 7:30 or so. And I get a phone call. And literally just I pick up the phone, like, hey Evo design, this is Michael. I was the only one in the office. Um back when we had desk phones. And and the guy goes, Hey, this is Dave Scanoni, head of design at Nike. I wanna hire you guys for a project. It was the guy that had offered me the job a few years earlier that I messed up.
0: Did he remember you? And I was
1: like, Dave, this is Michael DiTulo. I, I went to RISD. I was that idiot kid who basically like
0: Turned you, know, you down did, before the did, hiring right, freeze? Right. And he was
1: like, oh my God, yeah, okay, cool. He's like, well, let's do a project. And so I ended up working with Nike through Evo. For they have several, at the time, had several different advanced design groups. There was the Innovation Kitchen, and then Dave had left his role of um, head of design of footwear to be the head of what was called the Explorer Group. And they were doing all these really cool collaborations, like with Herman Miller and just like, what's the future of this brand and where can we go? And they were working with Astro and San Francisco and, then um, and working with IDO and continuum and, and us at Evo. And I think, I, I mean, I did like six months straight of projects. Um, and basically they're like, do you want to come work here again? You know? And yeah. You're I providing all this content. Yeah, I didn't mess up that time. <laughs> and so I went out, I flew out and, uh, for that for that interview i remember i put together these giant posters like four feet by eight foot and they're just the like concepts
0: um so multiple items on each oh, like on a thing, like a, just... like a
1: hundred concepts on a poster wow and i had like four or five of those posters and so i just like rolled it out on the table and they were just like holy shit and and we we were doing that at evo we would do those concept posters and send them to them and i i went When I took a tour, I went to Dave's office and I saw a few of the posters hanging up behind his desk. And I was like, oh, cool. My work's still up, like, uh, you know, six months later.
0: That's amazing. So, um, Now, what's the point of doing it on one page so that you can see the evolution of the creative? I think it's just
1: like, it's a little bit of a shock and awe. You know, it's like, instead of slowly flipping through one page at a time, like, so it's to
0: just visually backhand somebody, pretty much, like You're to like, stop them in their tracks. It's
1: it's a, I call it a, a surplus of innovation. You're like, here's like way more ideas than you could ever make, you know. And uh, that's a really interesting And each, each one would have a theme. Like, oh, here's the theme on like like lightweight running, and it's just like, bam, here's a hundred ideas on lightweight running.
0: That's amazing. So so that took you to Nike.
1: That took me to Nike, and. and and, and I had interviewed at a bunch of shoe companies that I, I, I knew I wanted to leave consulting because I felt like I had already had a great experience at a consulting firm. Uh, and I also felt like we would do work and people would be really happy, but some, a lot of times it wouldn't make it to production or if it did make it to the production, it would be pretty changed. And so I was like, well, what's going on that I'm not a part of where this is happening? And so I knew I wanted to go corporate, and I really enjoyed doing footwear. So I was like, oh, if I'm going to go from doing this really broad spectrum of work into only one thing, I think footwear would be the thing. And then Nike had reached out, and I was like, well, all I really know is Nike. So I I just proactively called a bunch of companies, and um, I ended up interviewing at Reebok, Adidas, Converse, Nike, and diesel at the time where they had a, a studio in Santa Barbara and um you know Nike wasn't the highest offer but but uh they all offered me jobs by the way which was amazing wow <laughs> um, that's fantastic yeah that was pretty cool um
0: but but Nike had the largest market share right
1: and it just it just felt right again like I'm very much like uh you know it's like you know it you know and I went there and like the people were nice and I just felt like I was going to learn more and that's what I wanted.
0: Now was Adi- Adidas was still outside of Portland as yeah, well? Yeah. Okay. So they had their campus there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it.
1: And, um, so I, I took the job at Nike, um, and a few, a few places. Oh, I also interviewed at New Balance. Yeah. And a few, like, I remember diesel like up their offer a couple of times. I'm like, guys, like it's just not about the money <laughs> I want to go here, you know? And, um, I got offers from a couple of different groups at Nike because it's it's a lot of groups. Sure, yeah. And I accepted the offer to work in a sportswear group because at the time, it had just just basically been formed. And basically for 30 years, Nike had been making shoes specifically for specific activities. And this is the first time they were going to basically acknowledge that they were a huge lifestyle crossover and design products for that. Um, so I did that for two years, uh, which was super fun. I worked on some ACG stuff. I worked on um, some like a lot of women's um, high-end product for like European and Asia specialty retail. Um, and and then I don't know. After a couple of years, I really wanted to work in Jordan, and I'd become pretty. you know, I had you know, become pretty close um with John Hoke who is the head of design for footwear now he's the chief design officer for the whole company all brands and and it just really like I mean I remember I was just drawing at, you know at my desk working on a concert one day and all of a sudden, I hear this voice behind me, like, hey, Michael, I just want to let you know I see what you're doing, and you're doing good work. Somebody scared the crap out of me. And I looked up, and John Hoke, was who's kind of tall, he's tall, he was looking over my cubicle while he was watching me draw. I had no idea how long he was there for. And I was like, a little terrified, because he's like, my boss's boss, right? Um, and I was like, hey, John, you want to go to lunch? And he was like, yeah, sure. And, and we grabbed lunch, and he's like, hey, why don't we have lunch once a month? I was like, cool, awesome.
0: So and, you were designing ACG and things that weren't Jordan, right? But you were drawing Jordan in like your free time and well, that's what he saw. He,
1: he saw me working on an ACG thing. Oh, okay. But, but, um, so we would have, but he was just respecting the yeah, work. Yeah. Got and it. we would have lunch, you know, once a month or so. And, uh, he's like, you know, Michael, I got shit the other day. Cause somebody was like, why do you always get lunch with Detulo and not other designers? And he's like, I had to tell him he's the only one that asked. <laughs> <laughs> he's like nobody. A- he's like nobody asked me to go to lunch, and and that's just my nature. Like I'd ask Tinker to go to lunch, and uh, I'd all these guys because like they're all super nice guys and they'll spend time with you. So in one of these lunches, I say to John, like I'd really like to work in Jordan next, and he was like, you know, Michael, there's been twelve designers in Jordan ever, like since the eighties, and there's been people, there's footwear designers that have been here for twenty years. You've been here for eighteen months.
0: Now was Tinker Tinker Hatfield? He
1: was at the he, time. He was. The was kitchen.
0: he the first Jordan designer?
1: Actually, he's not. He started with the Jordan Three. Okay. That's a. Okay, that was. Story. Yeah, that's yeah. a whole
0: other story. I I know that he's famous because of that yeah. shoe. Yeah. He, he basically saved the Jordan brand, right? Yeah. Because of that design, it's true.
1: Right. He he kept Michael at Nike, and he did uh, Jordans three through fifteen, and then twenty and twenty three, but um. So. So John was like, he's like, why, do, why should we give it to you? And I'm like, well, I, I, I've just always loved Jordan since I was a kid, but obviously everybody says that. And, and I was like, you know, I will, just, I will work harder than anyone. And you know, and he's like, well, you know, Michael's retired and he's like, what do you, I don't even, he's like, Jordan might not even be around in a couple of years. And I'm like, no, it's, it's going to be around. Like, I think it's going to be bigger. The
0: chief designer of Nike Said that it could be theoretically. Yeah, I think he was pushing back,
1: and Jordan wasn't doing that great at that time. I see, and and I was like, I think it just needs to grow from an athlete brand to an idea brand, and I think it became a brand that became about a core idea of of excellence and the best. You know, I think they really did an awesome job of turning Michael Jordan into a concept,
0: a lifestyle, yeah, in an incubator for it. And
1: so he was like, fine, go talk to Dwayne, you know, go talk to Dwayne and see what he thinks. And Dwayne Edwards was the head of Jordan Design at the time. And uh, Dwayne is amazing, amazing mentor, personality. And uh, he, he started, a, after he left Jordan, he started a school for footwear design in Portland called Pencil. Oh, cool. But uh, so I go to Dwayne. I was like, hey, Dwayne, my name's Michael DeTulo. And he's like, I know who you are. I was like, you don't have to introduce yourself. I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, like, I don't know. And, and, uh, you know, I really want to work in Jordan. He's like, yeah, John told me. And he's like, here's what we're going to do. He's like, I want you, I'm going to give you a brief, and you're going to design a shoe on the weekends, in addition to all of your regular work. And, you know, if that goes well, then I'll consider you for an interview. And I was like, totally fair. And he's like, that's, you're, that's cool. You're super eager to do extra work. I'm like, well, I mean, worst comes to worst. I still have gotten to work with you on a Jordan. So what do I, you know?
0: So, so I'm going to bring you a four by eight sheet of paper <laughs> yeah. full of a hundred yeah. sketches. Yeah.
1: Well, I was like, what's a few Saturdays. Right. And so, you yeah, know, I, I was, it was, he gave me a brief to do a trunner, like a Jordan training shoe. Um, and he would, you know, I'd send him concepts. He'd give me feedback, and he, you know, he, I could tell he was trying to see how it would take his feedback. And sometimes it'd be very specific. Sometimes it'd be nebulous. Like I remember, like one time he, he looked at my sketches and he was like, "Okay, how about I want to see more integration between the upper, the soft part of the shoe, and the midsole and the outsole. Make it more three dimensional." Like, all right, no problem. I came back a week later, and he's just like, whoa, you like went way beyond. <laughs> Crushed it. Good job." He's like, "Why don't we?" every quarter they have a meeting called Concept Review where um, at the president of footwear reviews all the footwear designers' work. So at the time it was Mark Parker, who's now the CEO. He's like, you know, I think this project is good enough. Why don't we present it at Concept Review? And I was like, well, is that going to be... Oh, I was like, okay, well, good luck with that. He's like, no, I want you to present it. And, and so I was presenting sportswear work, right, the previous day. And then the second day I come back and present with Jordan and I remember um Eric Sprunk was there at the time who uh I forgot his title but he was basically the head of product and then Mark Parker was there and they're like Michael what are you you presented with sportswear you're not in Jordan I'm like yeah I did an extra project for Jordan and it went really well Mark liked it and we came out and Dwayne was like congratulations you got the job so that's awesome yeah a little extra
0: work it yeah it goes hurts. a long way yeah yeah so what year was this approximately?
1: That was probably, I went to sportswear in 2003. So that was probably 2005. So Dwayne was the lead designer at the time on the 21 at that time.
0: Got it. Yeah. You, you're basically working in Jordan and you got FaceTime with MJ. Mm-hmm. If, yeah. I, if I can call him MJ. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, what was that interaction like?
1: It was intense. I mean, I was in quite a few meetings with him over the two and a half years I was in Jordan. And God, he's just really smart. I, I remember the first time Dwayne was presenting to Jordan 21 and it was an intense meeting. I mean, it was a lot of people trying to show work. And I mean, he even, you know, he kicked somebody out of the meeting for, he, he does not, does not like people that kiss up to him. And he felt that this person was kissing up to him and he asked him to leave and so i'm just you know the new guy kind of in the corner and Dwayne is presenting the 21 and on the bottom there are these interchangeable cushioning pods and on the bottom originally there was the emblem of um of michael's fraternity and so michael goes why did you put my fraternity logo on the bottom of the shoe and Dwayne's like oh we thought it'd be a pretty cool detail and you know it's a, a story element and you know, this and that and michael's like okay okay he's like well isn't like our biggest consumer is the the suburban white kid like what does this kid care about this black fraternity and, and Dwayne's like yeah i hadn't really thought of that and he's like well have you considered the fact that there's five black fraternities and you put one of their emblems on it the other four you're going to alienate
0: it. the other four The 4 are not going to buy the shoe
1: I'm like yeah that's a good point and he's like well isn't asia pacific our biggest growth market so this is like even less relevant to them <laughs> like, yeah, that's a good point. And he's like, lastly, you put it on the bottom in the traction. So for the few guys that are in this fraternity, what if they perceived it as an insult? And like you're like, stepping on the brand? Right, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. And he's like, yeah, take it off. And I'm like, that's just, his. he's off very quick. Yeah, you know? I was
0: going to say, off the cuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, he thought of five things immediately. Uh-huh. And so I mean, it was really fun. I mean, it was intense and fun to present him work. And cause if he liked it, it was going, you know, and, and he was pretty involved at that time. So that was, that was a real privilege.
0: That's really cool. Cause I mean, obviously like everybody knows Michael for being yeah. Michael, the basketball player and, and arguably the, the, ba- even golfer, right? right like yeah. he's a huge golfer. He's an icon, uh, you know, you know, uh, but nobody knows that much or, I mean, Least yeah. I don't know that much about him from, as a business person, mm-hmm. right? Other than his name and label and everything's worth bukus right. of money. Um, that's really cool. Um, you designed a backpack for him too, right?
1: Yeah. So I, I think, again, just goes back to, for me, I wanted to work on as many things as possible there. My my first immediate boss at Nike was not as understanding you know, his his. Thought was like oh I'm not giving you enough work (laughs) and and Dwayne saw it totally differently he's like this is awesome he's like because there were I think four of us on the footwear design team for Jordan at the time he's like but because you are so interested in so many things we will have more influence so we were sitting next to the apparel group and I became really close friends with um uh, still a great friend of mine Alan Strack who's also a DJ goes by Mr. Strack uh, and just like an amazing apparel designer. um, And, you know, we would just hang out a lot and he was like, Hey, like I'm working on some, some hoodies. Like, do you want to design the zipper pulls for him? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, it'd be super fun. And then he started working on bags and he wanted to design like a DJ bag, like a record, you know, bag that could hold like 40 albums. So we, we worked, we collaborated on that together. Um, And then one day we were just sitting, I think we were probably working on the DJ bag and Dwayne, my boss gives me a pair of Jordan threes that are in Michael's size, so size 13 and a half. And I was just, you know, we were looking at them and Alan just cracks a joke like, dude, you could put a laptop in those things. And I just thought it was hilarious. So I drew it, I drew like the the outsole of the Jordan one and the design of the Jordan one, kind of like morphing into a laptop bag like a shoulder bag and the time the head of um marketing was Gentry Humphreys and Gentry comes by and he's like Mike what's that and I was like oh is this you know just a joke you know Alan made a joke I thought it was funny I drew it and he's like hey can I borrow that and I was like yeah sure he comes back like a few hours later he's like yeah, I just met with Foot Locker here buy it
0: <laughs> no way I was
1: like, well, this is nothing he's like well it's something now so who got it. It's a project now.
0: Do they still sell that bag? No. Especially with all like the throwback stuff that goes on?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I think for me, I think it's just a little curiosity, a little, a little desire to do some extra work. Um, you know, every year they would redo the Jordan typeface. And so in mean, one year I was like, I want to work on it. And Dwayne was like, yeah, go talk to the brand guys and go work on the typeface. And same i'd go over to the timing guys that I had a watch group at the time and like hey can i work on a watch with you guys like i've done watches before and they're like yeah sure so no one's going to turn down free work and to me that was the cool thing about being at this company with such a broad global reach and it was to be a part of all these things and even though i was in-house i could operate almost like a consultant as long as i got my core work done. Right, right. Yeah, and to the point where I, I remember John, John being asking me. He'd always—he's like a very deep thinker—and he's like, you know, Michael, like you don't like sports, you don't play sports. You're working in Jordan. <laughs> and like the athletes love you because you don't kiss their butts because you don't watch sports. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I remember like Carmelo. I was presenting something to Carmelo once, and he was like, "Hey, did you see me in the game last night?" I was like, "No. Did you see me draw this shoe for you last night?" <laughs> <laughs> And he's Car- like Carmelo Anthony. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, This guy's funny. <laughs> you know, like this uh, hilarious. Um, I mean, I just I was trying to crack wise, but then as it's coming out of my mouth, I'm like, oh, that might be not the nicest thing right, to say. Right. <laughs> but right. he thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Um, so so John asked me, he's like, I want you to put together a presentation on like why this brand matters to you. Why do you even why do you care about this brand? Um, because you're doing great work, but you don't care about sports, and so I put together this video presentation. It's you know inspired by my brother. I was about to say, did yeah. you
0: hire your brother to video?
1: <laughs> no, but I think you know iMovie had just come out, so <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> and so you know, I just I had this concept, this idea that if you, I did like this little like brand mark for the video that was like the swoosh with a um a square root symbol around it, just like trying to get at like what's the core. You know, what's the square root of the swoosh? Right. And so I was like, you know, Nike equals sports, right? But what are sports? And sports are, at their core, the celebration of human achievement, right? Like somebody does something and they win. Right? And, and so once you level it down to the celebration of human achievement, well, you're like, you know, is Picasso in this brand? Is Albert Einstein in this brand? Like
0: you know, who, who, who isn't in right, this brand?
1: right. Anyone that's done something that you're like, that surprises you, you know, that to me, that's why, you know, I was watching like highlight reels of like MJ all the time. Cause I didn't love basketball, but I'm like, just look at that. That's right. i like, this person is doing stuff that we didn't think was possible. Right. And so, so I put together this whole video on that. It's like a, a 30 or 45 second video. And John was like, let's set up a meeting with Wyden Kennedy, the ad agency and pitch him the video. <laughs> My god,
0: everything you touched was like turning to gold, well, and, it seems.
1: And it was just again, I think it's just the desire to do extra work. So then
0: But you're also yeah, creatively I mean yeah, I think that's very humble of you and that's very nice, but on the same note, like you're coming up with some like really solid material.
1: There was an idea there, yeah.
0: That's amazing. Um And so yeah, after
1: two and a half years in Jordan, um one of my really close friends from sportswear became head of all design for converse scott pat who's now chief design officer at Colhan. um and when we we sat next to each other for like two years in sportswear and just you know got lunch every day we were super close so he was like could you nike had just bought converse and he was like you know i need some help over here and they had had a small performance and innovation group they actually had Dwayne wade was Sponsored athlete at the time, and he's like, "Could you be design director for this group? Because I, I need the help." And so I, I mean, I accepted the job. It was a huge promotion, um, and you know, I I resigned from Jordan, and um, you know, I remember the the VP in Jordan, uh, Howard White, was he was so mad at me, like, and, and he wouldn't, he didn't talk to me for like six months. And I'd pass him in the hallway, he wouldn't talk to me. And then finally one day, you know, H is like, "Hey, Mike, how you doing?" blah blah. I'm like, "Oh, we're talking again." Like, you're not you, mad at me? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, and I asked him, I'm like, "What happened, H? Like, why were you, why were you mad at me?" He's like, "Cause you left." I'm like, "Yeah, but these guys like offered me a huge promotion, and you know, right. I had to go for it." He's like, "Oh, I get it. I understand." He's like, "I just wish you had talked to me." And I was like, "Well, I just figured like." what would you care? He's like, what do you mean? What would I care? Of course I care.
0: He's missing your talent now. Yeah. He's like, he's like, you're,
1: I just thought I was just, you know, the young kid designer that nobody cared about. He's like, no, you made my job hard. I had to explain to Michael why you left. I'm like, he doesn't know who I am. He's like, yeah, he does. And like, And I had to be like, this dude just left without talking to me, you know? So, so yeah, I was a little pissed. (laughs) Wow. He's like, but I'm over it. It's fine. And he's like, you come back anytime.
0: (laughs) So life lesson learned, I guess. (laughs) Well,
1: and yeah, I I think, well, just to your point of, I didn't value myself. Right. And so I just was like, well, there's, I'm, I'm a, I'm a good designer on a team of good
0: designers and. You know, and you probably don't know your worth to some degree because you're just doing what you love every day.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, like I said, everybody on that team was solid. I mean, uh, Dwayne Edwards was the director who went on to found Pencil. Uh, Jason Maiden uh, was one of my best friends, still one of my best friends. who text all the time. Who, um, He went on to go to Stan- leave Nike, go to Stanford, uh, work for a bunch of fence- venture capitalists in uh, the Bay Area before starting his own brand called Superheroic, which is a kid's footwear brand. That Magic Johnson's an investor, anyway. Everybody in the team was awesome. Right? Yeah, so everybody's like, somebody. Yeah, it's like the the super friends or whatever, <laughs> Avengers the, or something. The
0: Avengers of Nike design.
1: Yeah, so I was. I guess I thought I was, you know, Hawkeye. Like no one's going to miss me if I'm not in this episode. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I did not maybe realizing maybe I was Iron Man. So, <laughs> wow. so, um, so anyway, yeah, that was an important lesson. And and three and a half years later, when I I left nike when i left converse altogether to go to frog because frog design offered me i was sure not to repeat that mistake and um i was talking to to scott who who was my boss basically about it and and getting also getting his advice before i even accepted the frog offer and he was like you gotta call john and i was like do i you know i was like i think so but like it's also awkward conversation he's like no he will be so hurt if you don't call him and so you know i called him he's a you know, chief design officer i was just like i had my voicemail message queued up like i knew exactly what i was going to say into his voicemail <laughs> and but he and answered he answered on the first ring oh, and he was man. like detulo what's up and i was like oh hey john <laughs> <laughs> oh <Yeah>. hey <laughs> yeah. do you have a minute is this a good time he's like well i'm driving to a board meeting he's like i'm about 15 minutes late but i got five minutes before i get there why don't you start and, and you know, just tell me what's on your mind. I'm like, I don't think it's a five minute conversation. He's like, well, just start. And then I'll call you after I was like, okay, well I think I'm going to quit Nike. And, uh, I heard the car pull over. <laughs> I heard the car turn off and pull over. I was just like, he's like, okay, let's start from the beginning. <laughs> oh, no. And so, you know, I told him that frog design, uh, which was started in 1969, you know, did a lot of the early Apple work, the original Sony Walkman. Um, was offering me a role as creative director of their San Francisco studio, which is their headquarters studio. Uh I have like eight studios around the world. And it's kind of like a once in a lifetime thing to go back to consulting and work with these giant companies. And he was quiet, you know, for a little bit. And he's like, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to take that job. <laughs> and he's like, and if you don't like that job, in two weeks you're call me and you have your job back. He's like, but I'm going to remove the fear out of the situation completely. He's like, because I could, I know you're scared and I just appreciate that you called me and that means the world to me. And he's like, I appreciate that you're not going to a competitor. That means the world to me. He's like, so, and he's like, I know I can make you scared enough to stay. I know I can write you a big enough check to stay. He's like, and I also know that in five years, they'll just hate me. (laughs) He's like, so go take the job. And in five years, if you want to come back, call me, come back. Um,
0: That's incredible.
1: And I don't know if I, I have been in a situation where people have quit on me and I don't know if, I don't think I've had that much grace. I don't know what the word is. Humility. Like, Well,
0: there's also a level of respect there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was, so, I was, I wasn't going to ask this question yeah. until this came up, but like, was that sort of the corporate culture of Nike where... I mean, obviously, yeah. it feels like a family because these people are really, yeah. really hurt, right? Yeah, when, you, when you don't talk to these people. Yeah. And now that you are, they, mm-hmm. I mean, that obviously ups your game of respect as well. So it works, yeah. it's a two way street.
1: I, I always told people when I was there, and it's gotten a lot bigger, um, but it was big then. At the time campus was five or 6,000 people. I always told people that it was a small company that happened to be big. Um, and that, that's kind of how it felt. At the
0: time. This is the best. Yeah. Because and, and, you have the resources, right. but yet you have yeah. the personality and the emotion mm-hmm. of caring about each other.
1: And the thing about Nike, though, is that every group is really different. The groups are very autonomous. Um, they all report up, but they, like Jordan, really operated as its own business. Sure.
0: Um, it's kind of, it feels that way. Yeah. It almost yeah. feels like a different company. But
1: even like Nike running it operates like it's its own business. True. And so your experience there could be really different, um, based on who is running your group. And I think I just happened to work in, in three groups in a row, uh, sportswear, um, Jordan and converse where it was really, it really, people were really caring. Um, and I have to say like, there's maybe something in the Northwest culture, like the Portland culture is also really caring. Um, and so maybe that's a part of it. I don't know. You know, I think, but definitely, but I would go back, you know, it's just, a, it's a great place.
0: I I mean, obviously like you can't say that about every company. Yeah. Let alone one that big. And, and I think honestly, like
1: <laughs> I was lucky in a way that maybe made me a little naive, right? Like my first boss at a school at Aaron with yeah. Aaron was amazing. So I was like, Oh, all bosses are great. Uh But i did have one terrible boss at nike and i was like what's going on (laughs) this guy's not great and then did he get weeded out anyway i think he's still there but you know i won't won't mention but sure but but then i had dwayne as a boss who was amazing and john who was amazing um and scott and then you know working consulting again at frog where you know it's a much bigger consultancy 500 person consultancy and we were typically hired by someone in the c-suite if not the ceo You know, a COO or a CMO to do a project and really getting to uh, peek under the hood at a lot of different companies. And you're like, wow, like I just thought all companies were nice and great and wanted to do the best. And I I quickly found that that was not always the case. Uh, And so I tried to make it part of my job to help. You know, how can I not only do a great design project for them, but how could I also be kind of an example of leadership and and it's kind of nice i have a few clients now now that have my own studio where we do just have like a rolling retainer agreement and part of the agreement is i mentor their team and you know just spending time one-on-one with their team and spending time one-on-one with their ceo every month to talk about strategy and employee retention and um you know i think that's fun for me It's, it's
0: to me it's all design you know that's that's really cool I wouldn't have thought that like as a consultant that would even be a part of the equation. Like yeah. let's talk employee retention. <laughs> yeah. I think in terms of like, I'm Hey, s- I'm sure that's crazy value added.
1: Yeah. And how do we, it's specifically like, it's like, hi, how, how do we grow like our product design team? How do we keep them engaged? Um, how do we take this junior employee and, and help him to become a leader? Right. Yeah. And so I've, I've lived that. So it's something that, i'm well placed to give advice on and it's great when you do in, in a, this the case most recent case that i'm doing this is with a company in solana beach here called cure and they're, they're growing really fast and the ceo is smart enough to know that he needs help with just like hey how do i grow these 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 they used to be individual people, and now they're work groups. And those work groups are going to become divisions, right, right. If, the, if the company continues to grow at this rate. And so um, he's smart enough to pull in a few consultants um, like myself on the design side. He's pulled in someone on the finance side to you know, augment him and, and help him. And I love, I love working for people like that who are, are smart enough
0: to, to know what them, they don't humble, know. To be humble. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so, all right, obviously you left Nike, then you go to Converse, then mm-hmm. you went to Frog. Right. Um, th- how did you get to Southern California? So, Frog is in, in San Francisco. Um,
1: we, were, we were living in Russian Hill. I always wanted to live in San Francisco. Um, that's I had this, there's this amazing kind of design recruiter who... He's kind of like one of those guys, like, you don't call him, he calls you, you know, and, and, uh, once you get to a certain level, basically he'll find out about you. (laughs) And so this guy had been trying to get me to leave Nike for a few years and, and he's just really, he's great. He's very consultative. Like he wants to get to know you, blah, blah, blah. And like one day he called me. Pitch me a thing i was like look tom like unless you got something that's like creative director of frog design you know he's like all right good to know two weeks later he called me he's like okay so i got you an interview with frog design i'm like what <laughs> so that's just you know he that's how he rolls um, oh, wow that's awesome so and at frog i was working with um i was on the intel account i was on the google account um doing hardware for google We were doing, I was on a Honda account, um, a Chinese startup car company called Coros. We worked on their first production model, um, a a bunch of great brands, but, um, So were
0: you designing cars for Honda?
1: Yeah. Yeah. We worked on an EV program. Right. That was a concept car. Um, so this small company, or, you know, compared to Honda, a uh, small company here in San Diego reached out to us, and we ended up, there, it's a conglomerate called the uh, DEI Holdings, and they own Polk Audio Definitive Technology, which is an audiophile brand, and a startup audio brand called Boom. And, you know, they had a new president, smart guy, you know, Princeton undergrad, Stanford grad, and it's just like we don't know to, we have all these different audio brands they're all kind of stepping on each other's toes um so they they had hired us to do a design language um across all of them so we did ethnographic research interview, interviewing users um and we built out a strategy we redesigned all the brand logos uh, did a design language for each brand and kind of a um, what i call kind of an innovation center so it's like what what will each brand work on from an innovation standpoint?
0: So how were they stepping on each other's toes from like a, a a product assortment standpoint or a demographic or were they different price points? Yeah,
1: I mean, I mean definitive was the most expensive, but of course they wanted to come down a little bit in price so they can get more volume. Polk was kind of the mid tier and they wanted to, you know, both go up in price so they could get more legitimacy and go down in price so they can get more volume. And Boom was just like the upstart that was like, hey, can you guys stop smashing us between these two rocks? You know? <laughs> and so we just wanted to give a clear voice for each brand. And so kind of like the shortcut was that, you know, Boom became about kind of millennial college students. Polk became kind of about Gen Xers who were kind of nesting into homes with families and definitive became more about um empty nester boomers who like just wanted the best thing right. and so and they had very different sound signatures and so we developed a design language that complemented those sound signatures where you know, definitive was like super crisp super precise so all the product design was very geometric lots of brushed aluminum and black Uh, And Polk sound signature going all the way back to the 70s was very warm, more musical, more like an instrument. So everything we were doing for Polk was wood and leather, um, no silver, kind of like a warm tone, nickel finishes on metals, and then very rounded. And then Boom was just all about this kid who was basically going to do his best to destroy the product. So it was all about kind of really fun, poppy shapes and colors that were as indestructible as possible. So I had worked with those guys for about six months at Frog, and we'd done a huge amount of billables with them, and eventually they were like, hey, why don't you just come down here? Right. You know, you're coming down to Southern California. Kind of like Nike did with you, basically. Basically. like we had a conversation and um, ended up building the team from one. They had one designer and, you know, over a five-year period built it to 20 people. Uh, Rename the company from DEI Holdings to Sound United. That was more about um, collecting and stewarding and curating these audio brands. Uh, Helped, you know, was part of the team that saw them as they purchased uh, Marantz and Denon. Um, And then so grew much bigger and designed the headquarters building so and and basically i had two teams by the end of five years i had two teams reporting to me uh, the first was a industrial design team designing the products and the second was a marketing creative team doing we we were doing the print ads launch videos uh displays in the store so it was really cool because i was able to kind of control creative across everything you know down to like what it said on the tag at best buy <laughs> so
0: oh that's cool yeah So like soup to nuts. Yeah,
1: totally. From what is it, what should we make for who to the littlest details.
0: That's awesome. Okay, guys, I just want to take a quick second and talk to you about Passion Fine Jewelry. Uh, Tim Jackson was last week's guest. Passion Fine Jewelry is his company and store uh, based in Solana Beach, California. He's been gracious enough to come on as our first sponsor for the podcast also, um, just a very, very great resource if you're into watches and have any interest whatsoever in independent watches in particular. Tim is a phenomenal, phenomenal resource. Uh, you can reach him through Instagram, Passion Fine Jewelry, uh, also PassionFineJewelry.com. He also has a very educational blog called IndependentInTime.com. Uh, check that out for more information. But thanks, Tim, for the support. Really appreciate it. All of you guys need to check them out if you're interested in watches. Thanks. Now back to my conversation with Michael. What What do you consider to be good design? Like, what What defines good design? I think good design
1: does three things.
0: Um, the first thing is.
1: is obvious like it has to solve a real problem for a real person you know sometimes you see something and you're like what's that really for is that really a real thing that needs a product you know it has it has to really be a part of someone's life and and help improve it uh the second thing we don't usually like to talk about but is true because we're designers not artists is that it, it has to be commercially viable right it has to be able to be produced uh For a profit, it has to be able to be distributed, it has to be able to be sold. So, you know, sometimes we're thinking about things like, hey, how many of these can you put on a pallet? Like, how many of these will fit on a shelf at Target? Because it's all part of it, and that can make a huge difference. And then the third thing that's super important to me is like, it has to somehow benefit culture. And that's that kind of like magical extra little something that like Jordan has. Where you're like, yeah, okay, that's a great basketball shoe, and clearly, like, they have figured out how to sell a basketball shoe for two hundred bucks, but so it's <laughs> profitable. Uh, but there is a whole culture around that brand that is part of the person. It's part partly the marketing, it's partly the product, um, and and so that's that's this extra like third heat that I try to bring to everything that I work on is is. How does this make you more important to the culture at large? Because you have competitors, right? And so if you're only making a very functional product that works, that can be sold, well, that's a commodity game. right? And you can make something that's good, uh, but you, can, you could lose your brand over that. Um, but if you add that third thing, that's when, that's when you start to make something that's you know, truly good.
0: As far as like color theory is concerned, like, w- what is the theory of color? I mean, I I I, it, I don't know if it's that literal or not, but like you hear about color theory, mm-hmm. there's obviously like color trends, mm-hmm. things like that. Like, what what role does color play?
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's huge. I mean, and and context is you know there's there's trends there's there's the core. Theory that never changes, you know, complementary colors, primary, tertiary, understanding how they work together. That never goes away. That's an academic learning. And then, then there's trends, right? Like, oh, it's like we've moved from these brighter, poppier colors to dustier pastels that you see coming in. So you're like, OK, I understand that. And then there's a the context of like, well, that just doesn't work in the kitchen or on a shoe. Uh, so you have to kind of combine all three of those things, um, in a way that makes it kind of relevant for who you're trying to talk to with the product. Sure. Um, and that's something that I like, honestly, I've learned so much from my wife, Christina on. So she has an undergrad in illustration and just a color is really important to her. And it's like, she, she paints, does a lot of oil painting and she never. She never uses a color out of the tube, she's always mixing and she'll spend like an hour mixing colors before she even paints. And um, I've just learned a lot from her on how important that is and how to use color strategically. Like, you can, I mean, I think we're all guilty of this as consumers where, you know, I'll see a shoe on the wall at Foot Locker, and you are be like, wow, check out that freaking bright red shoe where it's like salmon red. And you're like, that's awesome. And you go up to it, and you're like, oh, cool. Also comes in just white? Sweet. Right. <laughs> and like, that's a strategy where you're like, hey, we're going to make the shoe in three to five colors, and we're going to do one like super wild, on-trend color, and we're not going to make very many of them because we're not going to sell them, but it's going to bring people to the wall. And then they're going to buy the white one the black one or the navy one <laughs> right right so um
0: it's like fishing
1: yeah kind of yeah
0: and so you bait we, them with color yeah and then yeah. sell them the product in a, a variation of it
1: and helping clients to understand that can be it could be tricky because it, it, it's an inventory management strategy as much as it's a product strategy absolutely
0: like, how deep in the buy do you go yeah. based on the pessimism of selling that particular color
1: because the one thing i've learned about inventory management is like you're never going to be right the question is how wrong will you be (laughs) so you want to manage
0: yeah mitigating mistakes versus Mm. striving for excellence
1: but you know i mean i've definitely i've definitely been in meetings with financial people where they'll pull out a spreadsheet and they're like well 90 percent of the sales are black and white so why are we why don't we just not ship that 10 percent of bright blue or red like, yeah, because that 10% is getting you to 90% yeah. um, or it's contributing, right? And that's the one that's going to be on blogs. That's the one that's going to be in magazines. That's the one that celebrities are going to wear. The peacock. Yeah, and, and, and a certain amount of trendsetters will wear it, just not very many, but you need it because if it's just in black and white, it's just another black and white thing at Best Buy or at sure. Foot Locker or wherever. So
0: as a designer, like, how do you personally, like, how do you find your own voice as far as like your design aesthetic goes and, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing? Like, forgive me for saying this, but yeah. I always like, when I look at your sketches, Yeah, I it's almost like you are the embodiment of the Jetsons. Yeah. yeah. Like it's very mid-century, but it's also futuristic. Mm-hmm. It's curvaceous the way that like everything mm-hmm. in that TV show was curved right? or like, an oval or like a, a, a peaked mm-hmm. sort of at an orb. Yeah. Right. Like how, that's how I would describe yeah. kind of your aesthetic and, right. and the I shapes think. and things. But how do you do that? And, and this is the collective you now, like how does one find their own design voice?
1: Yeah. I think it has to be very, for me, it comes from a place of optimism and it's just who, who I am and who, it's the world that I want to see, you know, I'm not a very cynical designer, um, you know, and and you just kind of, sometimes you see stuff and you're like, oh, that's just another rehash or something with a pigeon on it though. And you're like, it just feels cynical, (laughs) cynical to me, you know? And, and, uh, you know, whatever. It just made
0: me think of Portlandia. Yeah. You put a bird on it. (laughs) Yeah. like,
1: it's just, I don't know. It doesn't feel good to me. And my my thing is like how can we, um, how can we get one step closer to the future, and you know I I call the that aesthetic that I'm trying to mine I call it friendly future because you see like like you see an automotive design you're like man how many angry predator faces run through the Optimus Prime filter do we need on the road you know right. and and I want things that are friendly and point to Maybe a better tomorrow that we're striving towards, and I think that is a philosophy that was really embodied in the 1950s and early 60s in design. You know, there was a lot that so needed to be improved in the world at that time. <laughs> but, hence, yeah.
0: the curvatures, like something yeah. softer, nothing too angular and mm-hmm. aggressive, and and Interesting. yeah, a
1: little simpler. Yeah, and I really try to highlight whatever feature is there. So I remember. Like, I was working on this phone for Motorola a few years back, and um, it was an early phone with, like, RFID in it, and so this was, I don't know, I guess it was, like, 10 years ago now, but I wanted to, and, and they also had some really cool Kevlar capabilities. Motorola had really kind of mined that space of, like, how do you make a consumer electronics housing out of Kevlar? So, I wanted to create this almost, like, space frame out of Kevlar that exposed the chip and then had like a clear resin over everything so it was protected and so it was very futuristic and simple and and a little soft but was grounded in showing off um a key expertise that they were trying to to push forward
0: so it'd be like showing the tourbillon on a watch or like a skeletonized movement
1: it's exactly like a, a, a exposed case back on a watch where you're like turn that into a phone because it's some cool stuff going on in there yeah, yeah.
0: sure so how do you day in day out like how, how do you challenge yourself these days like if, if you have your own voice right mm-hmm. like it how do you step outside of that box
1: and it's there's it's you have to invest in yourself um, and the way i do that is mainly with time and and somewhat with money but but uh, i mean both of us like to travel and so it's like, you, know, you might have to go to London for a couple of weeks or um, just sometimes in your own backyard and be a tourist. And, and so you need to, I need to schedule time for that. Uh, and so I, I try to run my practice where I only have a certain amount of billable hours and then the rest of that time I'm, I'm hunting, you know, I'm out there uh, looking at things. Um, and not always in the human not always in the human made world sometimes in the natural world and I've learned and grown <laughs> sure because uh, you have to be you have to in you have to be inspired you have to put ingredients in the pantry and i remember one of my uh, professors sky larry brinker who worked at nissan when i was doing the sponsored work at nissan he told me he's like you know michael like you design everything from your heart and that's really admirable but he's like, someday you'll reach in there, and there's not going to be anything left. And
0: well, that's uh, kind of dark. It's kind of dark. <laughs> Twenty when you're
1: 20 years old, you're like, what? And, and he's like, you got to start putting stuff in. And we, he told me this. We were in Milan at the time when he told me this. And he's like, you got to take time off, and you know, go to art museums and and see the world and
0: stretch the legs. Yeah,
1: and I, I think it's been. I mean, that's one of the many balances that Christina, my wife provides is like, she's always getting us out to art openings and getting to concerts and traveling. And I'm lucky because she's just is like, here's all the things going on right now. Which ones do you want to go to? And, um, it's just, it's, and it's just setting that time aside because, because otherwise like I look at it as like, I, I also get lucky in that I get to see a lot of different companies and a lot of different products and there's a lot of cross pollination. But if you're, designing footwear all the time or watches all the time you can get really insular and before you know it you're just drawing the same thing over and over again and it gets harder and harder to, to break out of those deep grooves so I've just always been somebody that's really been interested in that and because of that you know that third piece of good design we talked about being that good design is part of culture well if you want to make something that's part of culture you have to be a part of culture too
0: is there any like particular item you've designed where it's like the inspiration behind it was so far from what people would have thought like can you think of uh, something yeah. that you i i don't even know of an example like what would be yours
1: um i remember when uh, way back in my career i was working at evo we were doing a bunch of watches for timex and i was working on some metal bands and, you know so you're wearing
0: the bracelet yeah, yeah, yeah. A part so of you're... a bra- uh, watch.
1: And so I was really studying the way metal bracelets work and interlink. And at the same time, I was working on a project for Nike, and they wanted us to make a really flexible, lightweight, more minimalist running shoe. This is like maybe 2002, 2001. And so I designed a shoe where the bottom was like a bunch of linked together blocks of foam that were, you know, like a, like a watch bracelet. And I remember Dave from Nike being like, well, we couldn't do that. We can't like pin together pieces of foam because it'll just like explode when you're running. Right. He's like, but it's a cool idea. And he's like, let me, we'll take it in-house and work on it. Um, and you know that nugget of an idea becomes Nike free, right? You're like all those blocks that- The soul
0: for Nike right, free. You
1: know, I mean, I would never have thought of, they just they put these really deep blades in the tool to make these independently moving blocks. But um, you know, I think- the genesis of that could have come from that project where you're like it was all based because we were I was working on a watch in the morning and a shoe in the afternoon, you know. Wow. Uh, so, and I, I think that happens quite a bit. Um, you know, I've done a lot of work for for Icon, and in the work for Icon, it's you know, most of the work I've I've done is is very mass produced, where it's you know, injection molded or some kind of a really high volume mass production process. But working with Icon, where they're
0: so Icon 4x4, Jonathan Ward's company.
1: Yeah, where they're making things in the dozens, right? Not the hundreds of thousands. Right, nothing with a comma. Yeah, yeah, uh, except the price. <laughs> <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. A couple commas in that. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and well-deserved. Um, but, you know, understanding, like, oh, everything has to be CNC'd or bent out of metal and uh, and break-formed. And so I was learning tons about manufacturing processes that i knew nothing about before or i knew very i mean i knew conceptually what cnc was but once you get into the real limitations you understand a lot more and then you know i would eventually those those learnings would find their way into other things yeah, so
0: what were some of the projects you worked on with with jonathan,
1: Shout out jonathan by the way. yeah um i worked on the like, like just the first project i worked on him with him was um the gauge cluster of the fj so the original gauge cluster um and then
0: this the looks C- so good too
1: yeah and then for the cjs um i, I worked on the whole front face of the cj um gauge cluster and some of the interior detailing on the bronco um, then we did a bunch of other stuff together that someone that, you know, never saw the light of day, like an icon bullet Mustang and an icon, uh, Aston Martin, DB four. Oh wow. Yeah. Which is, would have been amazing that just never, never saw the light of day. Um, and then there's a, um, a, uh, a Plymouth, uh, Superbird that, that isn't complete yet, but it's been on like, in like hot com and stuff. Oh, that's cool. Um, and uh, sure. we've done a few other projects together.
0: So is there any difference really in pursuing a car versus a watch versus a shoe? I mean, yeah. other than the obvious, right? Yeah. Like, Oh, that you have to drive that. You know what I mean? But like, is the approach the same Is there Does it change ever?
1: So I think for me, it's a similar approach in that there's each one has like unique parameters, right? Like, well, the shoe, you need to understand, foot form and it's got to be built around a, f- a last and like it has to respond to the biomechanics of the body but also has to respond to fashion and yeah. there's the parameters right and you're designing a cell phone you're like oh it's got to fit in somebody's c- hand and it's got to yeah. fit the, the screen the battery and the pcb and um you know so there's these kind of like core parameters you need to understand across every industry and you know, i just try to take that into account with my process of like you know we just really phase one is discover so it it's, it's all about what are the unique parameters of this product type, what are the unique features and benefits you can provide, and then who is this for and who is your brand. Right. And then uh, phase two is exploration, where we're really just, okay, now that we understand those parameters, let's explore around them, let's play with them, let's turn some up and some down, let's overemphasize some and ignore others in, in an attempt to get somewhere new. Uh, and then... In the third phase, we're really you know, working with the client to down-select and then uh, develop that idea for production.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Um, speaking of cars, what are you currently driving these days? Standard H podcast, clearly. Got to yeah, bring up yeah. the, the personal car.
1: So I have a 2001 uh, Audi TT Quattro Spyder um, in a Nimbus Gray with a baseball glove, optic stitch interior. Uh, that, that I've had, it's an 01, I've had it since 05. Um,
0: and when, did, just, when did that car come out? I think 99 I was going to say, within yeah. a couple of years of that, because yeah. that's the original Bauhaus totally kind of inspired design. I just always loved
1: it. I mean, I, I think it was on the auto show circuit in 95, and I went to the, the auto show with my wife, and uh, she was like, what's that car? And I'm like, oh, it's the Audi TT. She's like, I love that car. Like oh they're never gonna you know they'll never make that and she's like why I'm like well it's, it's too simple it's too I mean it is like my design aesthetic it's very like, 100 you know, percent it's kind of like optimistically <laughs> futuristic friendly but
0: then you also have the baseball glove stitching Right, yeah, which she, is just so even like and so American for such a German company it's true yeah and a German design philosophy yeah. and
1: she, and she was like they're gonna make that car and we're gonna own it someday. And so I was always just kind of like, you know, looking at cars.com for a used one. And I saw this one pop up. It was literally like right down the road from Nike. And I like test drove it. I negotiated it. I was, I had just gotten a job at Jordan. Um, the, the dealer was a huge Jordan fans and he was a size nine, which is the prototype size. So yeah, I sure. hooked him up with a bunch of Jordans as I negotiated the price down. And then on Saturday, Christina's like, Hey, what do you want to do this weekend? I'm like, well, we're going to go test drive a TT. It's all negotiated. I had it all checked out. It's just,
0: it Oh, she didn't me. know you were doing it. No,
1: it's just all whether you want it or not. And she's like, we will go and test drive it. Cause I want to test drive that car. She's like, but we are not buying it. I'm like, okay, don't worry. And I had an MR2 at the time. So I was like, why don't you drive the MR2 there? So you can feel what that feels like. Well, it was a light car too. Yeah. MR2, super light. Yeah. Super light. And then, then, you know, we'll test drive the TT and the dealer is like, yeah, go ahead. You know, he just let us take it. Um, like five minutes into the drive you know her smiling from ear to ear i'm like what do you think she's like we are not leaving here today without this car (laughs) that's (laughs) amazing but we've had it ever since that's awesome um so that's that's kind of my car and then she has a a volkswagen golf r 2017 i think
0: wait so you have the tt right but she was the one that was like we will own this car one day
1: yeah it's just always been like my car i don't know that's Um, funny And then, and then she just, you know, both of us love to drive and drive fast. So she has the Golf R and we, we pretty much switch. We switch a lot. The TT's manual. Yes. Yeah. Basically if I have to drive more than 30 miles, uh, we'll switch cars because the TT's, she's an old girl at this point. Right. So, um, and the Golf R is just amazing. And, and, you know, before I had the Golf R, I had a Audi S3 and it's pretty much the same running gear. So um
0: favorite cars of all time
1: oh man it's like if i had to go one car i'd probably go uh aston martin db4 zagato it's just an amazing car yeah um kind of a cliche but mercedes-benz 300 gullwing oh sure it is beautiful icon yeah or iconic
0: yeah it's It's not actually an icon yeah (laughs) (laughs) going back to icon. right
1: um you know i mean there's like half a dozen ferraris like a from but i i tend to i tend to really like those very smooth racers from the late 50s early 60s when they knew enough about aerodynamics that they knew it should be smooth but not enough to realize that that actually was terrible (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) um before everything became kind of like a wedge that was all about downforce right they were trying to make these like you know jaguar e-type fuselage very aerodynamic uh more fluid dynamic shapes and uh I just think to me those things still look like the future
0: Sure. You know? so um crossing from automotive into uh horology you know watches mm-hmm. things of that nature you're you're kind of a watch guy what um you had a recent watch collaboration actually yeah
1: i did a piece uh with carpenter watches uh, neil carpenter out of brooklyn uh just a really cool boutique watch brand um So I got to work on a special edition uh, with them called the M18, which is really cool. It's the first brand collaboration for us. So it's the first product I've ever done that has my logo on the back.
0: So what does M18 represent?
1: It's just the 18th edition. I Uh, didn't know if that was like 2018. No, it's a good question. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that that model is called the M model.
0: So how would you describe that aesthetic? Obviously, we're, we're not visual here on the... Yeah. It's, the it's, the airwaves.
1: It's a, it's a field, it's basically a field watch case um, with an exposed back and an automatic, a, a Japanese automatic movement. Um, and it's a beautiful case. It's just really simple. And I wanted to really kind of highlight it and show it off in an, in a new way. He, he, it had always been, it was, it's their case, but they had always done kind of a classic field watch dial. There's a lot of numerals on it. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to just bring it maybe one notch over to my aesthetic. So we we did a super high polish on the case to really show off the lines. And then a micro perf for the band, giving it a little bit more of like an automotive sport vibe. And then the face um, has no numerals. It's just uh, uh, hour indices in white. And then these really, really faint uh, tonal gray second indices um and then uh the the second like the one thing that pops on it is that the second hand is 021c pantone orange so it's just like this very subdued um object that's very beautiful but then it's got this one little element that says look at me you know? yeah
0: yeah yeah that's cool why did why orange
1: it's kind of a
0: uh I mean it looks great against gray and yeah. things of that nature, but why? Because you you think of like the Speedmaster just came out with like mm-hmm. the Ultraman, that's got the orange mm-hmm. second hand.
1: That color is just. All, I mean, just looking around yeah, the,
0: the chairs out it's, here.
1: It's yeah, it's kind of a little bit of an inside joke. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Richard Kaczynski, who's also an independent designer, is like, oh, I always know it's a Tutoo sketch if it has O twenty one C orange on <laughs> it. <laughs> and so it seems since this, you know, in this case, the brand was really. I wouldn't normally make a color palette based on what I personally like, but in this case, the brand is reaching out to collaborate with my brand. Not, not with me as a designer, but with me as a brand. And so it felt appropriate.
0: So then I have to ask because your logo is blue.
1: It's just, those are the colors on the, yeah, on the, that's on true. the wheel. And yeah. those are the two colors that it's like straight cyan blue and O 21. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Orange. Okay. And I never use them together cause it's like, it's a New- lot. It's like the New York Mets at that point, right? Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I use them in isolation.
0: What are some of your favorite watches, speaking of watches? Do you have any? I
1: literally like a lot of like the classic square tags. Um, Monaco? Yeah. Oh, man. It's just like a beautiful case. Blue dial? Yeah. Yes. And um, yeah, I'm not like...
0: So that's I, very, I, 70s, right? very 70s, It's very 70s. It's
1: true. It's not very smooth. Uh, i like some of the classic like omega divers um and even like i and then like you get into like some of like the seiko divers like really big chunky seiko divers like the like awesome. the newer stuff newer but and they have some older ones i mean they they always go back pretty far yeah. but they did kind of re-released them that kind of like half exposed turn ring and stuff recently right. um some really cool stuff um and then i mean the not great horology but the designer in me really loves a lot of like the
0: lip stuff oh sure you know, like just really
1: kind of goofy fun
0: <laughs> that would yeah that's kind of uh the the Jetsons version of the watch I would say totally
1: yeah <laughs> you yeah, know I'm, I'm pretty predictable I guess yeah well no that's all good yeah. um, and and I think that's why I like some of those like uh big chunky omega divers too where you're like just you know, the lugs are like really integrated and it just you know, especially like when you pair pair that with like the, the diving strap like those chain mail straps you are like oh it just feels really cool
0: <laughs> you know well just taking it real quick back to business because we've mm-hmm. touched obviously several times on you owning your own business yeah. so what what took it so obviously you were at uh, sound united hmm what drove you to go out on your own finally I always wanted to have my own studio and
1: going back to that Raymond Lowy, you know, Giorgio suro inspiration uh, from when I was young and I mean I, I always respect people tremendously like Dita roms and and Johnny Ive who have made their career at a company uh, I have like just like a restless spirit in me that just couldn't make that happen and you know it's just like you look at you know Raymond Lowy and um, Hartman Esslinger, who started Frog Design right out of school, um, they just kind of like marched to their own drummer. And so I I always wanted to start my own studio, but I also wanted to have a, a big enough portfolio, enough experience, and a big enough network that I felt like we could do it successfully. And so when I was leaving Frog, before I took the job at Sound United, I was considering going out and starting my own studio uh actually i was talking about potentially partnering with a good friend of mine howard nook who is uh he's now one of the partners one of the owners for palm the reboot of palm and so and the opportunity came up at sound united and i was like well this is almost like a chance to start my own studio to build a 20 person team but you know basically somebody else is paying for it and we're, we're operating a bit like a consulting agency for this company that owns a lot of brands. And so I just set a time limit for myself, five years. And I made it like five years to the day. And, and uh, usually my wife is like, you know, I think, I think it's time. I think you've done all the things you said you wanted to do. You've checked all the boxes you said you wanted to check off. Um, because we've been together since i, I was 19 and wow. and i think like on our third date i told she asked me what i wanted to do when i you know who i wanted to be when i grow up and i said i wanted to be the next raymond Lowy. and so she's always been like a part of that she understands the mission well and, as an
0: artist too i'm sure yeah yeah
1: so uh and she's like you know i think it's time and i was really scared this is it was 2 years ago a couple weeks ago and i was really scared but um uh, i just like the process I described of like discover, design, deliver, you know, I did like a discovery phase where I interviewed a bunch of small business owners and people I trust to try to understand like if they could go back in time and give themselves some advice, what would they, what advice would they give me? (laughs) So so I could, you know, put together a, a good business plan for myself. And I think I talked to 12 or 15 people and five or six of those asked me to write proposals. I didn't even have you know a business yet. So you know, by the time I had left uh, Sound United, I had several proposals out there. And on my f- my first day of the, of the business, the first one signed. And uh, when So
0: in talking to these people about starting the business. Yeah, I started the business. They actually offered you yeah, business. Yes, yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I had a buddy of mine. We were having breakfast like not long ago up in San Francisco. And he was talking about how like when you ask for... For advice, you get money, and when you ask <laughs> for funny. money, you oftentimes get advice. That's funny. I never heard that, but I think I hadn't that's either. exactly what happened. I thought it was kind of genius. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't know where he heard it. But, yeah. Um. So, well, now that you're off on your own, uh, two years into it, congrats. Yeah. Thanks. Um, what's been the hardest part? Um, I think the hardest part.
1: There's been a lot of amazing parts, right? is like I can be anywhere and work the technology is so different than it was in 1998 when I graduated actually at dinner with my, my first boss recently. And I'm like, how did you do it? And he's like, what do you mean? He's just like, you, you had to rent a big office, get a receptionist, a phone system. Like I have like a laptop and an iPhone, (laughs) you know, like, and like all the people that work for me are all over, like they all live all over the place. And, you know we use a lot of cloud-based tools so it's like as soon as they click like save on a cad file like i get notified and like, check it out and give them feedback no matter where i'm traveling for clients um so that's been the amazing part the hard part is going from you know i had built this 20-person team and i had all these resources so i have to be much scrappier um and i have to be very clear with clients of you know, what they will get and what they won't get because you know, as a creator, as a maker, you you never want to say no, right? You always want to say yes, because you want to do work. And, you know, so I've had to learn how to have those conversations of when someone says, hey, can you do this? Can you guys do this? Like, yeah, we can definitely do that. And here's how much it will cost. Just like you have to be able to put your foot down Well, and just be up front. And I've also realized that almost like nobody minds. And if somebody did mind, it's like not the kind of person you want to work with anyway. Bingo. Right? So... Uh, and, and most times it's just been, I think most of my time is spent trying to find those clients who understand the value and, and want to do great things. Cause I can't, I'm, I'm only as good as my client is, right? I can't force them to do good work. Once I do my work, um, you know, they have to kind of like carry the football, into you know, the end zone. Right. So, uh, if, if they don't want to do that, it's not going to happen. <laughs>
0: Well, and and especially, you know, you're somewhat of a hired gun, right? Right. So it's like if they don't carry the football into the end zone, Mm -hmm. i.e. potentially make sales, right? right? If they don't hire the right marketing department or sales team Mm -hmm. or maybe even manufacturing facility. Exactly. uh, You stand a chance of not being hired again. Right. You know, no
1: one's going to be happy. Right. And so that's why I will ask before we start a project, all kinds of questions like, Who's your manufacturing partner? Do you have one? Right. Am I gonna be helping you do that work? Cause now that's value add, right? Like what's your launch plan? Like how are, you know, what's the business plan for this product? And so, you know, a lot of times they will be like, why as a designer, like, why do you care? I'm like, because every, all of those things determine the success of my work, right? Like sure. you could have, I could do something amazing. And if you have a terrible manufacturing partner, that's gonna make a piece of garbage. It's not going to matter how good your marketing and sales team is because you're not going to have something. You're like, I'm
0: here to create the idea and the design behind things, not actually make the product and sell it. So if all I wanted to do is just design stuff, I could post doodles on Instagram and call it a day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So what's been the easiest part?
1: Um, I think the easiest part has been uh, the work has been pretty fluid. You know and and that's something like I was prepared to I just didn't know you know I didn't know how it would be I've been so thankful how receptive people have been to me starting the studio and you know people in some cases I haven't talked to in 20 years reaching out to do projects and it's just been a pretty steady flow of work and that has been the best part that's um, great and and fun work you know cool projects that I'm proud of and and uh, I think that was I think in any creative person's uh, heart like if you're gonna leave and start your own thing that's that's the big question because you know you want to make things of value that that people appreciate sure
0: yeah so what's the structure of the company right now right now it's
1: just keeping it super tight I'm very I'm almost like determined not to grow for a little bit so right now it's myself and running all creative And then Christina, my wife, runs kind of the business side. So she she reviews all the proposals, she looks at all the work, she kind of runs project management interference, um, and then does all the finances. So she officially gets a salary now. And then that's awesome, yeah. And then I have two um, CAD contractors that are kind of my go-to kind of design development resources. Um, Another couple people I use for on the research side. Um so you know it kind of really depends on how busy we are but sometimes we've been as big as 7 with contractors and sometimes it's just been Christina and I so right, sure. again like the technology affords us the ability to have that kind of flexibility right now and you know I don't right. think it will I think we'll grow but I really don't want to be more than 5 on a regular basis Right yeah I'd rather say just no to work you know that's kind of my goal Yeah
0: I mean, I think part of the, the whole beauty of working for yourself is you determine your stress level. Right. I mean, unless you get that, I mean, in your case, that client that's just like breathing down your neck constantly. Yeah, yeah. But And I'm sure those exist, but those, what, are, mo- those are moments. Though, yeah, right? sure. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Kind of blips. Um, what advice would you give for the kid at RISD today that is like, do I go corporate? Mm-hmm. Do I go out on my own on the get? like what what do you yeah. tell that that student um
1: good great question i think there's been a real with this generation a real push in design education to get people to young designers to start their own businesses which is awesome it's great but you don't know what you don't know and so my advice would be don't be afraid to take a junior designer position at a firm like i did at a school maybe a small firm and just get in there and learn like it's not going to be forever. Um, you know, we've both been working long enough that we know nothing we do is, is really forever. Like we've lived many lives. Um, and just get out there and find some mentors because people will teach you things if you just ask.
0: That's great. I think that's solid advice. And one takeaway, if I may just interject is your work ethic, I think is something that Perhaps you can't even teach it, but you're either born with it or you're not. But something that i heard time and time again from you is that you, you sought out to do additional projects, you Mm -hmm. know? So, I mean, at the very least, you're probably going to learn something in ideation or you're going to learn something from doing more than what you're asked. I think that's, that probably goes across any industry really.
1: Yeah. I think like you're going to, you're gonna I think there's two things I look for out of doing extra work right it's like what can I learn and what can I gain can I use this project a lot of the things that we work on I can't talk about uh, sometimes never because it's like a strategy thing or sometimes I can't talk about it for two or three years so you know can we then use that learning project to to increase our profile and, and get a little notoriety so yeah
0: um do you want to talk about your book? Sure,
1: yeah, that was, uh, speaking of <laughs> that was a uh, in 2017 I did this project inspired by my friend Spencer Nugent he uh, he did a project called Sketch a day and I was like I want to do I want to do a sketch a day for a year. So for a year doing an additional sketch of concept sketch just for basically for Instagram and I got it about halfway through and I was like, I think this is a book uh, and so in 2018, when the project was complete, I compiled that into a coffee table book, and yeah, 365 pages of sketches. And uh, it's just basically physical Instagram, just like the Sears catalog is a physical Amazon, <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, <laughs> Full and it's, circle. Just, it's just really fun. I think it's, it's it's just different when you can see them, you know eight inches by 10 inches uh, versus you know three inches by three inches
0: well i'm I'm selfish and being sad about what I'm about to bring up, but you're about to leave and yeah. move up to Portland. What yeah. sparked that what uh what's next up there
1: so there's, there's kind of four key reasons that we're we're making the move from San Diego to Portland um, one is to be close to family, so my brother lives up there who I mentioned several times, and his wife, who's a, a project manager at Ziba Design. And they they have a son, uh, Logan, who's three, loves cars and spaceships, and just like just we just want to be close to them. Um, The second reason is there's um, just more potential clients for me there. You know, it's just Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, Columbia Sportswear, Intel has a big office there, so there's there's a lot of work. Uh, There's a Mercedes Studio there. Oh wow, I didn't Uh, know that. Yeah, so. And that's, you know, physical proximity, even though we are in this amazing digital age, it does, it does help some. Sure. Um, the third reason is there's also a lot of design talent there. It's so a really big creative culture, and so there's, there's more young designers that I can recruit and work with, and just being a part of that creative culture there. Uh, and then the fourth reason is I'm, I'm really passionate about design education, so I think there's more of an opportunity for me to give back to
0: that community. That's awesome, man. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Thank you for the coffee. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, wish you, obviously, the best of luck. You don't you don't need luck. It thanks, doesn't Wesley. sound like... Yeah, thanks for having me. Always good to see you. I appreciate it. Okay, see you soon. I'd like to thank Michael one more time for having me over. Just a really fun conversation, getting into the weeds design-wise, and uh, just talking all things creative. Um, hope you guys enjoyed it as always thank you for listening but it does help also to subscribe to the podcast in addition to that please visit standard h.com for any merchandise you'd like to pick up also thank you to clear headphones c-l-e-e-r headphones really great noise cancellation headphones super comfortable amazing sound Uh, Those guys have been instrumental in helping me get this podcast off the ground. I'd like to give them a quick shout out. Also, music by Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful. Uh, Thanks again, guys, for listening, and stay tuned for next week's episode.